This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 168. Buiti binafi, bienvenidos bitches, and thank y'all so much for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. What? There are many. It's true. Well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are <laughs> Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. Yeah, she's she's the good kind. She's the kind that when you... <laughs> she, she doesn't have to say not all white people because she knows <laughs> it's not what we mean. <laughs> and we're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. That's right. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops pod for all our social media the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a fruit loops patron you can also support us by supporting our sponsors yes and uh also give us a review oh yes five stars please yes. Five stars only <laughs> uh, so who are we talking about today beth today we're talking about angel maturino resendiz aka the railroad killer a mexican serial killer suspected in as many as 23 murders across the united states and mexico during the 1990s it was the 90s but before we get into it how you doing i'm good we had our first video club meeting with our patron patrons over on pet patreon oh my god yeah. i'm going back into the past i remember Remember, yeah. Pa oh boy, <laughs> she's back. Oh no, <laughs> old Beth is back. <laughs> and uh, so, in that meeting, we talked about the most hated man on the internet. Mm -hmm. And in September, we're going to be discussing Untold, the girlfriend who didn't exist. So, join us on Patreon so uh, you can join us to talk about that. 
please do. It yeah. was a lot of fun and yeah. I can't wait for the next one. Um, I'm good. I'm just, uh, this is a, a hefty episode. So let's just dive into it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, hello, angels. Thank you. Oh, so glad to see you. Now, what's in that bag, Beth? Well, we got a new five-star review from, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. Okay. Lularo Caridilistone. Caridilistone. Oh, <laughs> all right. They said they just found us and are catching up. They ah. also said they are the same as me, super organized at work, but their house is a total mess. So <laughs> thank you for that validation, and I love you. <laughs> uh, yes, we see you. We see you. We see Beth. Uh, and we thank you so much, Lula Dili Stone, for that review. Um, we got three new Patreons this week. All right. Um, Bryn O, Angela H, and Jessica F. So here are your hip hop air horns in case I forget. Because you're a All forgetful right. bitch. I am a very forgetful <laughs> bitch. Uh, but Beth still loves me, and I'm pretty oh, sure yeah. the Lord upstairs does. Oh, sure. Uh, yes. Uh, so. I like True Crime Spike with laughs and Brino kicks y'all fruities ass. She's a Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, next one. Shh. Shh. It's oh so quiet. Shh. Shh. You're all alone. Shh. Shh. And so peaceful until. Angela Fruity <laughs> loves to crumb pods. Ooh, we thanks Angela. <laughs> yo, yo! <laughs> We've never been so nuts about a crime. You want to laugh, but someone died. You love Thursdays, but don't know why. Till it's over. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Angela. We love you so much. You know you are. <laughs> All right, this next one is for Jessica. That's right. Okay. It's bad bitch o'clock. Yeah, it's crime 30. We've been through a lot. Yeah, we team fruity. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes, Jessica, you are the best. Yeah. Oh, with a fruity fence, we got no stress. Yeah. Oh, yes, Jessica, you are the best. Yeah. Oh, with fruity fence, we got no stress. Yeah. Oh, what BG said, it's not supposed to be. Girl, are you in danger? Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, but I hope you liked those. I did. I liked it. <laughs> Thank you all so much. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to get into the story when we come back. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. 
convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. And we're back! Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Our subject today is Angel Matarina Resendiz, known as the railroad killer because most of his crimes were committed near railroads, which he used to travel around the country. He has been verifiably connected to 15 murders all over the U.S., but is suspected in many, many more. So he's a murderer with a blue check mark on Twitter. Yes, Just kidding. he's verified. Now we're going to get into the stats. <laughs> so uh, Angel Maturino Resendiz had many AKAs, including Rafael Resendiz Ramirez, Angel Reyes Resendiz, the railroad killer, El Asesino de las Vías del Tren. Those are railroad tracks in Espanol, El Asesino del Ferrocarril, the uh, motor car, and Jose Mengele, the choo-choo man. And I don't know where I heard that. It must have been on a, I think I heard it on a podcast, but I loved it so much. I'm going <laughs> with choo-choo man. choo-choo man and El Asesino de los Rieles. What's Rieles? So, uh, rails. Rails. The murderer yeah. of the rails. Ride the rails, yeah. Or the I rail mean, murderer. The, the ra- yes, the rail okay. murderer. You gotcha, got it. Gotcha. Uh, many of his crimes took place in central Texas, but he has been connected to killings in Illinois, Florida, Kentucky, California, and Georgia as well. Resendiz used more than 30 aliases. I just listed only a few. Uh, he had four birth dates, four social security numbers. How? Who? (laughs) Ha? Why? He was also known by three identification numbers by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, a.k.a. INS, which has had him in custody at least seven times. It's a different animal. It's, you know, in every uh, cycle of U.S. history, the Immigration Service has its own own little thing. So he was in custody seven times, and I know we'll get into it in the uh, script. According to police in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, just across the border from Texas, Resendez was adept at crossing back and forth over the border because at one time, he worked as a coyote, um, smuggling groups of undocumented Mexican immigrants, not just Mexican immigrants, but they came in from Mexico, into the United States. Now, most of Resendiz's victims were found covered with a blanket or a sheet. None were very large because the killer himself was not large in stature. He was five foot seven. Five foot six, actually. Sorry. Five foot six? Oh, yeah. my God. A whole inch less. Yes. Poor thing. And just kidding. No, he's bad. <laughs> and around 140 to 150 pounds, there was evidence that some of the women had been raped after um, their death. So a little necrophilia 
uh, going on. Yeah. We don't have all the victims' names in this case, but rest in power to all of the victims and the communities and all the people affected by this fucker and his uh, heinous crimes. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, our setting is Mexico, which is made up of 31 states and one federal district. It is the third largest country in Latin America and has one of the largest populations, more than 100 million, making it the home of more Spanish speakers than any other nation in the world, which is pretty cool. Impressive. Yeah. Um, also, quick culture corner. Um, Mexico is very diverse. It's not just brown people um, and it's not just Spanish speakers. There's also a lot of indigenous um, oh, right, right. Latin people um, who speak other languages other than Spanish or in addition to Spanish. And a lot of people don't know this. I don't know why. There are black people in Mexico right. because of slavery. So right. anyway, just want to point that out. So the Mexico-United States border is 2,000 miles of terrain ranging from desert to urban sprawl is is the most traversed border in the world with over 350 million documented crossings each year but before the european invasion several different indigenous tribes inhabited the area spanish conquistador hernan cortez arrived in veracruz 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 <laughs> veracruz. veracruz that is actually where there are a lot of black people oh okay south very south in uh, 1519 Aztec King Moctezuma II invited the conquistador to Tenochtitlan, which is located in what is now the historic center of Mexico City. This proved disastrous for the Aztecs because in May of 1521, Cortes and his followers attacked and conquered the Aztecs. Cortes mm. then colonized the area and named it Nueva España, meaning New Spain. Okay, how dare you? Cortes. How very dare you? How dare you? Also, um, it wasn't like they were um, a super military power. They also brought diseases, oh, which yeah. wiped out a lot of people and made the win easier. I mean, yes, if you think yes. about it. So large numbers of indigenous people were massacred, with many more dying as a result of diseases. Ah! Look at that, <laughs> including smallpox, which were brought to Mexico from Spain. 500 years later, in 2021, Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, asked the country's indigenous Mexican peoples for forgiveness of the abuses inflicted on them during the bloody 1521 Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire. In 2019, he'd written the Spanish king Felipe the Six, Six, not good with Roman numerals, demanding an apology for the atrocities committed by Spain during the conquest and its aftermath. King Felipe declined. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Rude. Yeah. How dare he? In the late 1600s, as Spanish explorers set their sights on the land north of Mexico, they first encountered tribes like the Caddo, Karankawa, and Huahuiltecans. These tribes were settled in the southeastern part of the state and known as the First People of Texas. As time progressed, more tribes started to migrate into the area referred to as New Spain, such as the Apaches, Humanos, and Comanches. During the late Spanish colonial era, the area that is known as Texas became Spanish Texas. Got to put that. Got We have to let everybody know that this is ours now. Um, <laughs> the region was occupied and claimed by the existing indigenous groups with sporadic missionary incursions into the area. Spanish Texas had only a small European population, although Spain maintained a small military presence to protect Catholic missionaries working among Native American tribes. After the Mexican War of Independence, 
independence, which began in 1810 and ended in 1821, Mexico gained its independence from Spain. By 1834, the American settlers in the area of Texas outnumbered Mexicans by a considerable margin. In 1836, white Americans who'd moved to Mexico turned around and seceded from the country, forming the short-lived independent Republic of Texas. To maintain the borders of their new country, these self-declared Texans formed the Texas Rangers. Ooh, I shudder every time I see that. <laughs> anyway, also known as the Frontier Battalion. According to Miguel A. Levario, a history professor at Texas Tech, they were an early example of a group that used violence to maintain the border between Texas and Mexico. Uh, they were an early example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we seen it on the news, too, in 2022. <laughs> at that time, he says, quote, they were mostly responsible for removing Native Americans from West Texas, unquote. In 1845, the U.S. annexed Texas, making it the nation's 28th state. Then came the 1846-48 Mexican-American War. President James Polk was seeking to set the border between the two nations significantly farther south at the Rio Grande River. When Mexico refused... Polk disregarded Mexican sovereignty and borders, moving U.S. troops into the Mexican region. I will never understand all of this. All this 18, yeah. uh, 1800s, 1900s bullshit of just, I like it here. Yeah. It's mine it's now. It's mine. Yeah. And what? <laughs> uh, so Mexico responded, as you might imagine, by moving its own forces into the disputed regions, and the war between the two nations began. On February 2nd, 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed by the United States and Mexico, ending the war and extending the boundaries of the United States by over 525,000 square miles. In addition to establishing the Rio Grande as the border between the two countries, the territory acquired by the U.S. included what would become the states of Texas, California, Nevada, Utah, most of New Mexico, and Arizona, plus parts of Colorado and Wyoming. Wow. Wait a minute. There's yeah. a new Mexico? I'm just kidding. Uh, well, <laughs> the same year that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo cut Mexico in half, the Fugitive Slave Act was enacted. What a time to be alive. Yeah. After Mexico ended slavery between 1829 and 1830, the Texans reestablished it in the new Republic of Texas. By the time the U.S. annexed the territory, its enslaved population had grown from 5,000 to 30,000. For many enslaved people, fleeing south to Mexico made more sense than trying to make it to the northern free states. But after the Fugitive Slave Act established that legally, slaves must be returned to their owners, vigilante slave catchers began to monitor the U.S.-Mexican border. These people weren't trying to keep anyone out. They were trying to keep enslaved people in. I'm glad you pointed that part of the story out. Um, so the first federal law governing which immigrants could and could not enter the United States was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. In the late 1800s, after Canada passed a tax on Chinese immigration, Chinese immigrants began to enter the United States mostly through Mexico. And because of this, the U.S. focused more heavily on the U.S.-Mexican border as a place where immigration officials needed to screen people to determine if they could enter. There was no concerted effort to keep Mexicans from migrating to the United States until the Mexican Revolution broke out in the 1910s. Once Mexicans began to escape the conflict by immigrating to the U.S. in large numbers, militias formed along the border to keep them out, including the Texas Rangers. Mm. According to Miguel Lavario, 
The rangers were very much part of violence towards the indigenous Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the 1910s. That part. I'm so glad you included that because the Texas Rangers have a horrific violent Violent history history, that people forget to ignore and love to just think Chuck Norris. Right, right. (laughs) I love that guy. But wait. Anyway, (laughs) in addition to Texas vigilantes known as, quote, home guards, unquote, began to police the border. Although these home guards weren't official state forces, they had the blessing of the governor to operate. So that's that's nuts. Terrifying. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. In 1911, the first ever border fence was completed. The Bureau of Animal Industry ordered the construction of the fence in order to keep cattle in Mexico from entering the U.S. as a form of prevention following widespread cattle tick disease. The second law, after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, aimed at restricting immigrants to the U.S., was the Immigration Act of 1917. Now, in order to be able to cross the U.S.-Mexico border, people had to pay $8 per person and pass a literacy test. Wow, that's Hmm. nuts. (laughs) (laughs) They do the same thing to Black people when they want to vote. So it's it's America. Yeah. Ugh, garbage. In 1924, the U.S. established the Border Patrol, a federally armed force specifically dedicated to policing the border year-round. Enforcement of the regulations along the border became stricter. Initially, these officers did more policing of Prohibition-era bootleggers than Mexican immigrants, but its main goal was to impede Mexican immigration as well as unauthorized immigration from Asian countries. During the Depression, feelings of hostility towards immigrants increase, right? Struggle um, contributes to that. Uh, yeah. it's, it's the, I'm struggling, so it must be them. The federal government passed laws imposing restrictions and penalties for hiring immigrants. Over one million people were repatriated to Mexico during this period. It's now estimated that about 60 percent of the people in the Mexican repatriation drive were U.S. citizens of Mexican origin. Wow. They are. <laughs> That's a lot of people. And it, yeah. I mean, that's splitting people up from yeah. their communities, from their families. And they weren't even from Mexico. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. What the <laughs> fuck? Uh, so today, policing America's borders is a four billion dollar per year enterprise requiring some 20,000 Border Patrol agents. It's very difficult to immigrate legally to the United States. Immigration law is second only to the income tax code in legal complexity. Mm-hmm. But According to the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, or ITEP, undocumented immigrants pay billions of dollars each year in taxes, yet immigrants use significantly less welfare than native-born Americans. I'm glad you said that, Yeah, um, because it's true and it's a lot true. of people might not realize it. Yeah. Now, despite our story about Angel Reyes Resendiz today, we have to mention that he is an outlier. Immigrants, including illegal immigrants, are much much less likely to be incarcerated in prisons, convicted of crimes, or arrested than native-born Americans. We're trash. (laughs) Except for Angel. Now let's get into Angel Maturino's early life. All right. Our subject today was born Angel Leoncio Reyes Resendez on August 1st, 1960 in Izucar de Matamoros in the state of Puebla, Mexico. According to his mother, Virginia Resendiz de Matorino, he was dropped on his head as an infant. 
And I, I think it was when he was actually being born. Uh, yeah. Once I, I, I listened to a, a few podcasts about this and they gave a different timeline. So some said one said it was when he was born. One said it was 10 days after. And then one was unspecific. So I don't know. Yeah. And I feel like I have to say that there's a lot of stories about his childhood. A lot. Which yeah. may or may not be true. So um, we're just going to present some of that information and you can take everything with a grain of salt. We so. a round of applause for Beth for being <laughs> a responsible, not journalist. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Good Boy, job. Thank you. <laughs> so he reportedly grew up in a home filled with violent adults. His mother was physically abused as a child and as an adult, and she too used violence to discipline her children. Angel reportedly had six siblings in total. His mother never married Angel's father, Juan, and raised him by herself until he was six years old. At that point, his mother married a man named Luis Marino and Angel went to live with his uncle Rafael Resendiz Ramirez and his aunt. One source I found said that his uncle was actually his father. Don't know if that's true. I, so no, there no. you go. Yeah. His aunt said that she and Rafael spoiled Angel because they had no children of their own. But other sources said that Rafael sexually abused Angel. His mother said that his formative years spent with his aunt and uncle, quote, lacked proper guidance, unquote. And as a child, he roamed the streets without a real family role model. Who's to say? Yeah. Uh, now, reportedly, he I was going to say, he, we didn't say where he is. Normally we say where, where the, I normally t tell where they are. So people don't have to be like, is this person still on the streets? Oh. And when I give the stats, <laughs> but he's not on the streets anymore. Nope, so don't worry not about Not on it. the streets. Uh, so reportedly, he often went hungry and sniffed glue to calm his hunger pangs. He got into fights at school. And in one instance, a child threw a rock at his head, striking the same spot that apparently might have been impacted when he was dropped on the head as an infant. His mother said that when he was eight, Angel was raped by a neighbor. Some reports say that Angel ran away from his uncle's house when he was about 11, and he lived on the streets for a while. His family remembered him as a timid child, physically small for his age, and a loner who seldom got into trouble. But because of his small stature, he was the target of bullies. Angel returned to live with his mother around the age of 12. His mother told the Chicago Tribune that when he was 13 or 14, he was sexually assaulted by a group of older boys after going swimming at a nearby river. Other sources said that he was just beaten by the boys and was left bleeding and unconscious after having been hit in the head with a brick. Angel grew to be five foot six and 140 pounds, so pretty slight. According to prison records, he had a seventh grade education. As a teenager, Resendiz began illegally crossing the border in the United States. He first came to the attention of the U.S. Justice Department in August of 1976 when he was 16 and he was caught in Brownsville, Texas, trying to cross the border from Mexico, but he was deported. Denied. Denied. <laughs> Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, 
Mesopotamian devil worship and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So now we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. After this first deportation, he returned to the U.S. where INS agents picked him up a month later in Sterling Heights, Michigan. And yet again in October 1976, this time in McAllen, Texas. He used multiple aliases, but the one he used most often was his uncle's name, Rafael Resendiz Ramirez. Mm. I feel like back in the day, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, getting deported wasn't that big of a deal. No, I, I we, think I you're, mean, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. We would see people at Christmas one year and then they'd not be there the next year. And, and then they'd be you'd back. find out they're deported and then they'd be back the next year. Yeah. Like, yeah. Whoa. Hey, <laughs> it must not be that big. Of, that was little little Wendy thought. This must not, not be not big that deal. big like, of a deal. Just like time out for five seconds. No big deal. Uh, so in 1979, he was arrested in Miami, Florida for severely beating an 88 year old man inside his home during a burglary. He was sentenced to a 20-year prison term for burglary and assault. Resendiz's mother said he was gang-raped while imprisoned in the United States. He was paroled within six years and then again deported back to Mexico. Over the next decade, Resendiz was apprehended in Texas, Louisiana, Missouri, and New Mexico for various charges, such as falsely claiming citizenship, possessing a concealed weapon, attempting to defraud Social Security, burglary and trespassing. He spent some time in jail and after each incident, he was deported. That is a lot. A lot. Of, a lot. Yeah. Of, a lot the of only crime. one I know of about was the Social Security one. He tried to get a Social Security card. Um, okay. By using like a forged birth certificate or something. Oh. Yeah. So Still, do I mean... Yeah, no, you don't want to mess around with Social Security. Yeah, he, he got good jail time for that one. Yeah, it, remember, <laughs> I can't, I'm sorry, but we just talked about Hunter Moore. Moore, yeah. Who fucked with the wrong people and the anonymous people eliminated his existence yeah, yeah. by 
basically wiping out his social security information yes. and declaring him dead in yes. the whole state. I thought, yes. wow. Anyway, don't mess with it. Yeah, anyway, don't do that. <laughs> use the railroads to travel around the country to find work. According to... Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, according to... <laughs> I was just waiting for you to... <laughs> sometimes Beth just lets me go and sometimes I'm just waiting for her to tell just me. Stop. She did. According to the former FBI profiler John Douglas, hello John. Hello John. Uh, when, <laughs> when when he hitched rides on trains, he didn't necessarily know where they were going. When he got off the train, he'd scope out the area and find a house to break into. He might case them out, looking through the windows to see who was occupying it. The weapons he used were primarily weapons of opportunity found at the scenes, which is terrifying. Yes. John Douglas called Resendiz a bungling crook and very disorganized, but one whose own disorganization worked well for him because Mm. his trail was haphazard, because he himself didn't know where he was heading next. It kept Resendiz elusive. He's like a go with the flow kind of killer. Yeah. Going with the flow is like, you know, it's like chill vibes, but um, (laughs) not when you're not when you're murdering people. So according to Resendiz, <laughs> he's just going, he's just, just going with the flow. You know, oh, here's yeah. a knife. Look at what the universe has placed in front of me. No, you know what? No. <laughs> according to Resendiz, sometime around 1986, he took up with a couple from an indigent community. The male gentleman who Resendiz said was Cuban was older and was allegedly into Santeria. Resendiz said all he knew about the woman was that she was from Florida. Strike one. Just kidding. Yeah. And her name. <laughs> may have been Norma. The woman and Resendiz became friends. Resendiz said that he and the woman took a motorcycle trip to the suburban community of Converse, where they planned on firing a gun for target practice. But he killed the woman after she allegedly disrespected him, using (gasps) the gun they were going to use for target practice to shoot the woman multiple times. Her body was found three months later in an abandoned farmhouse. He figured the Satan-worshipping boyfriend would come back to confront him. So Resendez just killed him too Mm. and dumped his body in a creek somewhere in Texas. Now, uh, Resendez didn't expect anyone to miss the couple. After all, they were crazy indigent Satan worshippers. And the man's body was never found. In the 90s. It was the 90s. It was the 90s. <laughs> Resendiz moved to the small town of Rodeo in Durango, Mexico, over 300 miles from the Texas border. There he lived with his common-law wife, Julieta Dominguez Reyes, a lab analyst for Rodeo's public health clinic. Julieta described him as a gentleman and said he was never violent towards her. According to one source, at some point, Julieta had a spontaneous abortion or miscarriage that devastated Resendiz. He evidently did not get into any legal difficulties in Rodeo, where people described him as a slightly eccentric loner who liked to go for long bike rides accompanied by his dog, Patol. He taught English classes at Fray Bartolome de Casas, a convent school, for $6 a week. He picked up the language on the road. The couple would live for a month or two together in Bordeaux. Then Resendiz would go north to find work so he could send money home to his family. 
He hopped freight trains to travel to Kentucky to work in the tobacco fields or Washington to pick asparagus. He'd pick oranges in California or harvest rice in Texas. That's what most immigrants yeah. do. Is they're just coming here to work, to work. do their business, yeah. and send, send the money, money home. home. Yep. That's that's way we're survival is the name of yep. the game um, for most people, not necessarily on him. Um, while he was working up north. Angel sent home about $140 a month, far more than he got teaching English in Rodeo. In addition, Resendiz could get $400 a head for smuggling people into Texas. And he would also sometimes bring back stolen cars to sell for a profit in Mexico. And I don't know if you've been to Mexico, but I remember the first time I went seeing Volkswagen Beetles everywhere for like hundreds of dollars. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. When I turn 16, this is where I need to go <laughs> to get a car. But don't. Because I'm poor. But don't. Yeah, because but it didn't ever work out that my, way. My <laughs> ex-husband had a truck stolen from our, you know, like, right out in front of our house. Oh, and my God. And it was gone. It was just gone. And then, uh-huh. like, years later, the police called him yeah. and said, hey, we got your truck. It was coming back across the border. So they'd been stolen, taken to Mexico. Oh. Sold to somebody in Mexico who, you know, thought they bought a legit car or truck and then drove it back across the border. But they checked the the VIN number and found it was stolen. So that person who got who bought the truck got totally screwed, Uh you know. Oh, shit. Well, good goodness gracious! So I guess don't, I don't dodged do that. Bullet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Unless you're in Noted. Mexico and just going to be driving around in Mexico because it once you cross the border, <laughs> I guess yeah. Uh, beware. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! I didn't. So there I you didn't go. Even think about that. Well, thank you, Beth. You're this welcome. is my wise friend, Beth. Um, she's just wonderful. Old. <laughs> yeah, she's. <laughs> Anyway, according to Julieta, during his stays up north, Resendez became involved with hate groups opposed to gay people and abortion clinics. He delivered rambling religious speeches that disturbed people. And, uh, you know, conversations about religion wouldn't be out of place in this region. It's very Catholic. So it's significant that his speeches alarmed folks. Oh, like he was extra. Yeah, he was extra. Like, you are doing the most, Resendiz. <laughs> relax, relax. So one relative described his diatribes as unintelligible, apocalyptic discourses. But according to a local shopkeeper, he was generally quiet and polite, uh, that he sometimes talked about right-wing politics or Christianity, but he kept his voice sweet and soft. Oh, that'll teach him. <laughs> like, no, it, it still sounds still crazy. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. However, Resendiz had become fixated on the moral character of those around him. That's a problem. Yeah. Particularly those who he thought practiced witchcraft, performed abortions, or who he suspected to be gay. On July 19, 1991, Resendiz murdered 22-year-old Michael White. White's body was found in the yard of an abandoned house in downtown San Antonio. He'd been bludgeoned to death with a brick. It's been reported that Resendiz murdered White because he was gay. 
On February 23, 1997, a 16-year-old Wendy Von Heunen ran away from her small Illinois town of Woodstock with her boyfriend, Jesse Howell, 19. Wendy and Jesse left Illinois in a car with two other teenagers. But just a few days after arriving in the area of Bradenton, Florida, the two couples started to get on each other's nerves. <laughs> so the other couple dropped Wendy and Jesse off at a truck stop. They were nearly 1,500 miles from home with little money and no transportation. On March 18th, Wendy spoke to her father, William, on the phone. She was crying and said that she wanted to come home. Relieved, he wired her $200 to get a bus home. Wendy and Jesse picked up the money, but they did not buy bus tickets back mm. home to Illinois. A few days later, on March 21st, Jesse called his parents from a Flying J truck stop in Dade City, north of Bradenton. He said that he and Wendy were going to visit his grandmother in North Carolina, and then they would head home. On March 23rd, 1997, the body of Jesse Howell, 19, was found in the bushes near the railroad tracks running through Bellevue, a central Florida town about halfway between Tampa and Jacksonville. He'd been beaten to death with a railroad air brake coupling. Whoa! Missing was 16-year-old Wendy Von Huben. Wendy's family then went on a tireless campaign to find her. They distributed leaflets in the Chicago area and did interviews on national television. The TV show Unsolved Mysteries also featured a segment on her case. On August 29, 1997, in Lexington, Kentucky, Christopher Meyer, 21, a University of Kentucky student, was walking along the railroad tracks near the college with his girlfriend, Holly Dunn, when Resendiz came out of the shadows. He threatened the couple and tied them up. Resendiz then bludgeoned Christopher to death with a rock. Afterwards, he turned his attention to Holly. At first, she fought him, but he stabbed her in the neck and said, quote, See how easily I could kill you? Unquote. Holly was raped and beaten, then left for dead. But somehow, Holly miraculously survived. She was covered in blood and suffered a broken eye socket and a broken jaw, but was able to get to a house for help. Miraculously is Indeed. the word yeah. that fits. On October 4th, 1998, in Hughes Spring, Texas, Resendiz beat 87-year-old Leafy Mason to death with an antique flat iron after he entered her home through a window. Her front door faced the Kansas City Southern Rail Line tracks only 50 yards away. From this point on, all of Resendiz's known crimes occurred inside of homes. On December 11th, 1998, Resendiz bludgeoned 81-year-old Fanny Whitney Byers to death in her Carl, Georgia home. Mm. Another man was initially charged with her murder, but the charges were later dropped. It's kind of interesting to me, just that this part of the story, how many states he covered. Yeah. Um, and, and they're all... I guess if you look on a map, they are close to each other, but it's just it's just interesting. Yeah, and the, the dates are pretty close together. So right. he got to places pretty quickly. Right. On December 17th, 1998, Resendiz broke into the home of Dr. Claudia Benton, 39, in suburban West University Place on the outskirts of Houston, Texas. The mother of two twin girls, Dr. Benton worked at the Baylor College of Medicine as a pediatric clinical geneticist. Wow, doing the Lord's work. Her husband had taken the two girls to visit family in Arizona, but because of work, Dr. Benton could not go with them and was home alone. Resendiz entered her house while she was asleep. He then raped her, stabbed her repeatedly with a kitchen knife, then beat her to death with a bronze statue. Mm -hmm. Her body was discovered lying on the floor of her bedroom under a blanket. That is 
that's terrifying. Awful. That's your worst. Yeah. In, in your sleep, in your while you're asleep, home. somebody sleep, sneaks in. Yeah. So police noticed at the scene that Dr. Benton's ID had been taken out of her wallet and left out. The perpetrator had also eaten some fruit. Get the fuck out of here in the kitchen before he left and apparently spent a lot of time in the home going through the family's things. The house was near the Union Pacific Railroad tracks that ran through West University Place. Resendiz had hotwired Dr. Benton's Jeep Cherokee and stole it, but cast off the steering column cover in the family's garage. Police found fingerprints on it that were later matched to those of Resendiz. Three weeks later, a county judge signed a warrant for Resendiz's arrest for burglary, but not for murder. He said there was not enough evidence. That's so interesting. I think because um, the evidence that they had was the fingerprints on the steering column cover and the car was obviously stolen. Um, but, you know, it would you would think it would also follow that the person who stole the Jeep also killed Dr. Benton. But what do I know? What what do I know? I'm just a podcaster, yeah. but I do know that judges are, who are the ones handing out warrants have to be able to discern what's legitimate evidence and what's not. Right. And it just seemed like there was a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Arrest him for burglary and then later you can get him for murder, maybe. Ah, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. Like the cherry on top. Yes. Or the yes. dessert <laughs> after mm, the meal. Delicious. Mm. <laughs> Murder charges. <laughs> so in early 1999, Resendiz was in Rodeo, Mexico, awaiting the birth of his daughter with his common-law wife, Julieta Juti, Julieta, Julieta Juti, That's not what it is. Her name is Julieta, and I am, I'm sorry. That is not it's, right. <laughs> that is not, I should, don't, <clears throat> you know what, I'm fired. By spring, Uh, By spring, though, he was back in the States. On May 2nd, 1999, in Weimar, Texas, church members arrived for the regular Sunday service at the United Church of Christ, but there was no sign of their pastor, Norman Skip Cernick, 46, or his wife, Karen, 47, the church secretary. The Mm. couple lived in a house at the back of the church property, adjacent to the railroad track that bisects Weimar, about midway between Houston and San Antonio. Yeah, most churches have a parsonage, I think they're called, that pastors live in. Um, So the couple was found in their home, bludgeoned to death, with a sledgehammer and covered up with sheets and blankets. Yeah. Karen had also been raped. At the scene, police again noticed that the perpetrator had taken the couple's IDs and left them out, and that he'd eaten up some fruit in the kitchen. He'd also spent an inordinate amount of time in the house. The couple's red Mazda was found in San Antonio about three weeks later. Hmm. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. What do you got for us, Beth? Authorities began making connections. Mark Moorhead, a Texas Department of Public Safety Intelligence officer, had been looking at the Cernit case and was talking to Drew Carter, a Texas ranger who was working the Benton case. In both cases, the killer used what was available in the home to murder the victims. The killer then covered them up with blankets or sheets. Other similarities were noted, such as the IDs of the victims being left out, the perpetrator eating fruit in the kitchen before he left, and spending a lot of time in the homes. Moorhead believed that they were looking for the same person. He suggested to Carter that they run DNA tests comparing the killings. A week later, Carter called him back. They were linked. 
Got him. <laughs> now, in June of 1999, the FBI placed Resendiz on its top 10 most wanted list. Misidentified him, though, as Rafael Resendiz Ramirez, one of his aliases. Though the FBI later corrected the error, the error, the, the error, error, the error, they continued using both names on wanted posters. On June 2nd, 1999, the Border Patrol apprehended Resendiz near El Paso as he was attempting to cross the border illegally. While he was in custody, INS ran his fingerprints through its computers, but nothing unusual turned up. Interesting. Since that system was not linked to the files of other law enforcement agencies. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> geniuses, <laughs> you fucking geniuses. So unaware that the man was on the FBI list, they returned him to Mexico. <laughs> Good job, friend. <laughs> So after his release, Resendiz immediately found his way back to the back to the states. Uh, my mom, when she was a kid and our teenager, she found out they were moving to the states. She did a little dance, <laughs> and she would kick her leg up and say, "We're going to the states." So <laughs> leg up in the air, I, yeah, leg up in there. Found his way back to the states. Uh, so on June on June fourth, nineteen ninety nine, within forty eight hours of his release, Resendiz was in Houston, Texas, H-Town. There, he murdered school teacher Noemi Dominguez, 26. She was murdered in her apartment with a pickaxe. Awful. Her apartment was located near the railroad tracks. The same day in Fayette County, Texas, 73-year-old Josephine Convica was killed with the same pickaxe no. used to kill Noemi, a widowed grandmother of six who spent her days gardening at her home outside Weimar. Josephine was found in her bed with the pickaxe buried in her forehead. Oh, my God. Yeah. Also left at the scene was a newspaper open to an article about Resendiz's crimes and a toy train that had <gasps> been left on the bed. He is fucking with all yes, of us. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I got goose pimples. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Wait, I don't like this. Chrissy, I don't like this. <laughs> Stranger things. Uh, Bev, I don't like this. Hello. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. It appeared that after Resendiz had killed Noemi, he stole her car, then drove it into Josephine's house and killed her. Resendiz's fingerprints were found at the scene and Noemi Dominguez's DNA was later identified in Josephine Convica's home. Josephine lived four miles west of Weimar, where the month prior Reverend and Mrs. Cernick were killed and within close distance to a rail yard. Her car had been tampered with, but the killer had apparently been unable to hotwire the car. Seven days later, officers found Noemi's 1993 white Honda Civic abandoned at the International Bridge at Del Rio, Texas. Soon, authorities discovered that fingerprints linked Resendiz to a whole chain of crimes, not just in Texas, but all across the motherfucking country. And panic erupted among those living near railroads. Authorities convened a multi-agency task force dubbed Operation Train Stop. Okay. All right. Let's go. <laughs> choo, choo, choo. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm dead. I'm dead. This is my ghost here. Beth just made me laugh to death. Oh, my God. That was good, Beth. Good job. 
On June 14, 1999, the Los Angeles Times reported that investigators were looking for a quote-unquote Mexican drifter named Rafael Resendiz Ramirez in connection with six deaths in Texas and one in Kentucky, all brutal beatings that took place near railroad tracks. He was even featured on the TV show America's Most Wanted. Wow. Now, the manhunt was complicated by the fact that Resendiz had no permanent address while continuing to travel throughout the United States and Mexico via railroad. Ex-FBI profiler John Douglas, hey John, (laughs) commented that the manhunt was also, quote, hampered by the lack of a coordinated computer system that would allow law enforcement officials to compare notes instantly and determine patterns, unquote. Hmm. Stating the obvious. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That guy's a genius. Somebody should somebody Somebody should make him him a job. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody should give him a job. Slap his picture on all kinds of things and books and stuff. He sounds important and smart. (laughs) All of the victims that were linked to Resendiz at the time, five in Texas, two in Illinois and one in Kentucky, were killed in homes near railroad tracks. 200 agents were given round-the-clock assignments in locations where Vresendiz was known to have struck and where he might strike next. Hundreds of railroad police patrolled Union Pacific's 36,000 miles of track across 23 states. Wow. About 2,000 trains a day, each pulling an average of 72 rail cars travel along Union Pacific's tracks. Wow. That's a lot. That is that's a lot. That's yeah. a that's a lot of heavy heavy lifting and and effort and yeah. I I commend it. Yes. On June 15th, 1999 in Gorham, Illinois, these broke into a mobile home and murdered the two occupants. After shooting George Morber, senior, 80 years old, in the head with a shotgun, he then used the shotgun to bludgeon to death Morber's daughter. Carolyn Frederick, 52. Resendiz beat her with the shotgun so brutally that the gun snapped in half. Mm. Their house sat only 100 yards from the railroad track, and the next day a passerby spotted Carolyn Fredericks's red pickup truck in Cairo, Illinois, 60 miles south of Gorham, being driven by a man matching Resendiz's description. Wow. I got to say, when I was researching this, I was like, how far away do I live from the train tracks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this seems too easy. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. After his fingerprints are documented at the crime scene, officials in Illinois charged Resendiz with the murder of George Morber Sr. and his daughter, Carolyn Fredericks. Officials in Louisville, Kentucky, where Christopher Mayer had been murdered, did likewise. They passed out wallet-sized photos of the murderer, urging citizens to notify the police immediately if they even think they spotted him. Freight yard security was stepped up and transients were hauled into local jails for positive identification and questioning. Latinx men, even those who worked in the yards, suffered dirty looks from townspeople and harassment from police. They Mm. complained about a hate backlash as a result of the publicity. Yeah, I mean, it certainly made it really easy for people to other everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, that's dangerous. It is. So, yeah. Um, so fuck you, Resendiz. <laughs> <laughs> Hangouts for transients became targets for raids. Policemen marched through the homeless shelters, blood centers, and soup kitchens where men earning money as migrant workers were known to frequent. Loiterers about town were gathered up and brought into police stations for questioning. 
Police halted a freight train in Columbus, Ohio, and searched all 75 cars with dogs after a panicked housewife glimpsed a Latinx man on board. Oh, my God. (laughs) The very next day in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, a man living near the tracks shot his neighbor to death after she knocked on his door late at night. Oh, my God. explained that he thought it might be Resendiz. Holy moly. Yeah. The FBI traced Resendiz's whereabouts to Mexico, where he was believed to be hiding near the town of Ciudad Juarez. In Mexico, the manhunt was less intense. Alejandro Astudillo of the Chihuahua Attorney General's office said there was a warrant out for his arrest and, quote, if and when he is captured, he will be handed over to Interpol, which has the records for the extradition, unquote. Only two agents were assigned to the case. And by the way, isn't Interpol England? No, Interpol is International Police. It is? Yes. Oh, okay. The International Police, yep. I didn't I didn't know that they had any leg to stand on on this side of the Atlantic. Yep, yep, but they do. Look at me learning things. <laughs> In early July, the FBI recruited the help of Resendiz's common-law wife, Julieta. Julieta turned over to the FBI 93 pieces of jewelry that her husband had mailed to her while he was abroad. Authorities examined the jewelry, which included rings, bracelets, earrings, and watches. 93 pieces? Sir! Now, they circulated photographs of the items to family members of the victims and to police to see if they recognized anything. Relatives of Noemi Dominguez identified 13 of the pieces. George Benton, the husband of Claudia Benton, identified several other pieces. Drew Carter, the Texas Ranger who was working the Benton case, thought that Resendiz's sister Manuela, who lived in Albuquerque, might be able to help. So he contacted her. Manuela, who feared that her brother might be killed by the FBI, bounty hunters, or vigilantes, promised Carter that she would do everything possible to help. Carter told her that if Resendiz surrendered himself, he would be assured of his personal safety while in jail and regular visiting rights so that his wife, sister, and others could visit him. The offer was then passed on to another relative who acted as an emissary between Manuela in Albuquerque and Resendiz in Mexico. That evening, word came came from Ciudad Juarez that, based on Carter's word, Resendiz would surrender. The surrender was scheduled for 9 a.m. the following morning. On Tuesday, July 13th, Manuela and her pastor accompanied Carter to a bridge that connects Zaragoza, Mexico, with El Paso, Texas. I'm really surprised that they, especially for a brown person, <laughs> they didn't just send SWAT to go and get him, mow him down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. get him, get him. You know, right. um, they let they they, they let, let him, him surrender. surrender. What is yeah. this? Oh wait, it was the nineties. <laughs> so. <laughs> I guess at the appointed time, Angel Maturino Resendiz walked over the bridge and surrendered to Ranger Carter. According to Carter, quote, he stuck out his hand. I stuck out my hand and we shook hands, unquote. <laughs> they skipped away. Yeah. Just kidding. They did it. <laughs> and they lived happily ever they after. Happily ever after. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my Lord. The surrender brought relief, especially to the victims, families and friends. The Dallas-Fort Worth Internet Service reported several hundred people in Weimar attended a ceremony to pray and give thanks for the suspect's capture. 
As the sun set and a train whistle blew in the background, residents of the South Texas town hugged and cried. Wow. That that's um that's really profound Touching. of a scene. Yeah. yeah. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. Um, so now we're going to get into the trial. So even though Resendiz was formally charged with the murders of seven people in total, he was only tried for the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton. Resendiz's court-appointed defense attorneys fought to use an insanity defense. Although Resendiz resisted being interviewed by a court-appointed psychiatrist, he eventually did relent. He also refused to accept a change of venue, despite his attorney's insistence that he would not get a fair trial in Houston, a.k.a. H-Town, a.k.a. Beyonce's hometown. (laughs) The trial commenced on May 8th, 1999, and it took eight days. The defense brought forth forensic psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Cohen, who diagnosed Resendiz as schizophrenic and claimed that because of a mental delusion that led him believing his victims were evil, Resendiz did not know that his conduct was wrong. Agree to disagree. You know, it's giving, yeah, it's giving bullshit vibes. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm yeah. not feeling it. So Resendiz claimed that God had ordered him to destroy abortion clinics before an evil presence compelled him to kill at random. He claimed that he was on a mission from God and that he would ride the rails. <laughs> I'm <laughs> laughing only because my son used to love Thomas the Trade. And my son used to say that all the ride, ride the, the rails. rails. But no, not in a joyful way. He would ride the rails and then jump off when he felt the presence of evil people. At one point, the Houston Chronicle reported the killer testified that if he were executed, quote, he would enter suspended animation for three days before appearing in a new body in the Middle East to battle Israel's enemies, unquote. Oh, obviously. Um, can we revisit that insanity defense? <laughs> That's what- <laughs> That's what I would have said. That's what I would have done. Now, uh, who who knows if he's telling the truth? uh, Yeah, you're right. Uh, Beth's bullshit meter is going off. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, it's going to break. However, a psychiatrist testifying on behalf of the prosecution presented an altogether different summary. Dr. Ramon Laval, while agreeing that Resendiz did have unhealthy views of women and mankind in general and suffered from misguided fixations, testified that Resendiz knew what he was doing when he murdered Dr. Benton and others. Of the 20 plus witnesses for the prosecution, the last and most impacting was Holly Dunn. 
who had survived her attack. She testified that she and Christopher Mayer were attacked while walking home from a function at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. She detailed the assault, stating that after Resendiz killed Christopher, he told her, quote, you won't have to worry about him anymore, unquote. <gasps> Holy fuck. Yeah. Um, shout out to Holly Dunn. Yeah. Her story is so compelling. It is. In closing arguments, the prosecution pointed to the heinous nature of Resendiz's crimes, the premeditative nature of each, the heartlessness displayed, and especially to the physical evidence of his guilt. Fingerprints, palm prints, and DNA, motherfucker, evidence collected from the scenes of the crimes. The defense team merely begged for the mercy of the jurors to spare the life of a murderer. Attorney Rudy Duarte told the jury, quote, our client recognized he had a problem and he turned himself in. That is something, unquote. That's like it's, the lamest, yeah, the yeah. lamest <laughs> argument they, ever. That's something, they, right? Right, guys? That's something. Yeah. Am I right? Am yeah. I right? And they, yeah. And they, they begged for mercy of the jurors to spare his life in Texas. Yeah. Is this a Hello. joke? <laughs> I can just imagine all the jurors <laughs> laughing hysterically, <laughs> tipping their, like hitting their heads on the back of their chairs laughing. They want us to be merciful <laughs> in Texas. Get out of here. So on May 7th, there's so much evidence too. Yeah. On May 17th, 1999, after 10 hours of deliberation, the jury pronounced Angel Maturino Resendiz guilty of first degree murder and premeditated murder. Despite his lawyer's pleas, Resendiz was sentenced to death. Shortly after arriving on death row, Resendiz, 46, told the Associated Press, quote, I don't believe in death. I know the body is going to go to waste, but me, as a person, I'm eternal. I'm going to be alive forever, unquote. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, boo. Now, in July of 1999, <laughs> detectives had looked into the possibility that Resendiz was involved in the murder of Jesse Howell and the disappearance of Wendy Von Huben. In early 2000, after being contacted by detectives, Resendiz confessed to killing Wendy and Jesse. He said he had did so because he believed that they were, quote, unquote, anti-Christians who believed in witchcraft. Investigators say there were no signs that either of the youths were involved in any such activities. They were just young kids. Yeah. Yeah. They were just, they'd run away from home. Yeah. And yeah. they were headed back. Mm -hmm. yeah. In July of 2000, Resendiz provided detailed directions to Wendy's body. And on July 15th, 2000, investigators found the body of 16-year-old Wendy Von Huben. She'd been strangled to death and wrapped in a blanket and a camouflage jacket. DNA testing confirmed her identity. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you. Angel Maturino Resendiz was held on death row in Livingston, Texas until 2006. He was only convicted six years earlier, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah, that's fast was, as far as death are, row is concerned. As far as exactly. Yeah. People are on death row in other states for, for like decades, decades yeah. and die there. Yeah. But not in Texas. And in June of that year, a Houston judge rejected claims by Resendiz's lawyers that mental delusions made him ineligible for execution. Shortly before his execution, Resendiz confessed to 11 other murders in addition to the known nine at the time of the trial. The FBI was later able to verify at least 15 murders, dating back to 1986. Fingerprints and DNA evidence connected him to murders in six states— Texas, Kentucky, Georgia, Illinois, Florida, and California. On execution day, families of the victims packed the observation area. 
Before his death, he asked forgiveness from the victim's family members in attendance, saying, quote, you don't have to. I know I allowed the devil to rule my life, unquote. After thanking God, his final words were, quote, I deserve what I'm getting, unquote. I do not disagree. Round of applause for the guy who's got it right behind the (laughs) un aplauso. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Getting what uh, he, yeah. Uh, I don't, yeah. I mean, he he doesn't deserve to go to summer camp. I'm not a fan of the death penalty, but I'm not mad about this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel. As Resendiz awaited the lethal injection, his feet trembled beneath the sheet covering his body. He was executed in Huntsville, Texas by lethal injection on June 27, 2006. Murder victim Josephine Convica's daughter said, quote, I wish Resendiz the worst. He's destroyed so much of our lives, unquote. One victim's mother summed up her life since the murder of her child, including the terrible memories disinterred at the trial. Quote, it was like watching a horror movie, mm. unquote. Holly Dunn gave her firstborn the middle name of Christopher after Christopher Meyer. Her family keeps pictures of him around and her kids know, quote, that's mommy's friend who went to heaven, unquote. Oh, my God. Wow. That's wow. That's beautiful. Holly has dedicated her life to helping other victims of sexual violence. In 2006, she received the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Award for public service. In 2008, she founded Holly's House, a non-residential child and adult advocacy center for victims of intimate crimes. In 2017, Holly published a book called Soul Survivor. It's a memoir in which she recounts how she lived through the vicious assault, helped bring her assailant to justice, and ultimately found meaning and purpose through service to victims of sexual assault and other violent crimes. Remarkable woman. Yeah. So now we're going to get into what we think made Resendiz snap as well as our takeaways. What are your thoughts on this one, Beth? So my understanding through my research, uh, a lot of people said that Resendiz actually hated the United States and Americans. And I think interesting. I think that he probably didn't at first um, okay. before he came over here. But then mm-hmm. after coming here repeatedly for work, and Mm -hmm. facing racism and being deported so many times. Mm -hmm. I think his anger just festered. And I don't think that that's the reason why he did all this. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I think that was a factor. Didn't help. Yeah, didn't help. And uh, I don't know if he was schizophrenic or not. Um, Okay. But I don't think so. (laughs) Okay, OG, a true crime. I'll take it. His, His crimes seem to be fueled by anger and hate, Probably yeah. the seeds of which were born in his childhood of being bullied and abused. Right. Um, but he was a sexual predator. Yeah. Regardless yeah. of whether or not he had a mental illness, he might have had a mental illness, but he was also a sexual predator. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> if he just killed these people and, you know, done some weird stuff, um, uh-huh. like, I don't know, made altars or who knows um yeah i might be able to buy suit yeah well (laughs) i don't know about a skin suit but you know if he'd killed them and left like a bible on their Uh body or you know something something weird but Mm -hmm. anyway uh if he'd done something like that i might be able to buy the whole i thought they were evil excuse but uh he raped women yeah he yeah you know so yeah I, I I agree. And I think um, the sexual predator thing might be hard for some people to understand or stomach or swallow, um, especially in the face of him having a family. 
essentially. Yeah. Right. A wife well, lots who of... reported no abuse. But right. tell us more. It, well, doesn't that happen of, a lot? Uh, yeah, it crime? does happen a lot. I mean, uh, BTK, uh, the Green yeah. River Killer, uh, you know, right. lo- lots right. of serial killers have wives and families um, mm-hmm. and, that don't know that this is the thing they do on the side. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I think the whole uh, mental illness, uh, schizophrenic or not sch- schizophrenic thing um, yeah. was just... And all of his stories about how he heard voices and blah, blah, blah. I think it's just mm-hmm. an excuse, uh, a justification for his own acts of evil. That's just what yeah. I think. I th- I think that you are right. Um, and I am agreeing with all of the points that you made. I thought about your statement about him hating the United States and how it, it kind of fueled his anger. Right. And it b- took me to... Cut to 2001, not long after he was arrested. Um, we That's when 9-11 happened, I think. Was it 2000 or 2001? And I remember being in my social studies class in high school and my teacher saying, they hate us. Everybody right. in the world hates us. Not everybody. And I remember, <laughs> I, re- I remember wondering why. But when, I mean, the U.S. is very good at going into other parts of the world destabilizing them fucking with them making a big old mess aka crossing the u.s border moving the border um making it difficult for people to get in and out people who are just trying to survive or flee whatever destabilization fuckery mess we caused so that that's where my head went right. I don't, there, right. there's nothing to that point but that it, <laughs> it, uh, it, it, i just wanted to bring that just up bring it we up. do yeah. a lot of fuckery in the world yeah. and so i can understand people being not great feeling great about the United States. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's, um, and I mean, I'm, I'm proud to be an American and all that other stuff, but I just, I can understand. Yeah. When you um, look from out, outside through their eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's a Mexican saying, uh, somos los que nos cruzaron. Um, you assholes crossed us <laughs> is what that, <laughs> what that says. So that's, uh, a little, uh, extra on on the thought that I had. I also think that um, uh, hating Americans is not an excuse for murder. Right, right, right. (laughs) Especially, you know, you you might hate the way that some people treated you and uh you might hate the way the government treated you. But yeah. some eighty-year-old woman living in her house, minding just her gar- beeswax, yeah, gardening, yeah, and, you know, whatever, just yeah, like, yeah, not cool, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, it's kind of interesting the juxtaposition of um, him, uh, you know, being this really awful sexual predator, but again, caring for his wife, sending his wife gifts, being adult, I guess, uh, loving his child. Yeah. I guess he was um, like a doting father. Yeah. 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 Um, I also think the history of head injuries, there, there was a lot of reference to it in all of the sources. Right. I consulted. Yeah. Um, and I do think there is something to that. Um, if you have your serial killer bingo card out, bingo. <laughs> <laughs> head um, injury is definitely yeah. very high on the list. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, at some point, um, his uh that his wife having that miscarriage um i also think fueled his anger and it was after that that he killed he he um 
killed those people in the eighties. Okay. And um, so I, I, I think that that pain stuck with him and um, uh, might've contributed to his mental state of hurting other people. Let's see uh, in some of his crimes, he talked about actually seeing evil coming from the the houses that he would go into right that he would seeing choose evil yeah. coming from people um and i don't know if that's a side of schizophrenia or psychopathy it, it or can, whatever it can be i mean if okay. you're schizophrenic then you might think you see evil mm, you know okay. they do have okay. uh hallucinations and uh-huh. auditory uh-huh. hallucinations so yeah you know it can be but I, I don't buy it. I don't think that okay. was happening. Yeah. That's just my By opinion. The- hey. <laughs> I, I keep saying that. <laughs> no, and I, you know, I, I know, I, I admit, I don't know a lot about schizophrenia or people with it, but I, I want to understand, right? I want to be a good citizen in this world. Right. So I want to understand everybody Most in it. And there's a really do great not, podcast. Do not hurt other people, you know, when right. they have schizophrenia. Most people with schizophrenia are more likely to hurt themselves, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, right. And uh, I just wanted to shout out this really great podcast by the same guy who does Snapped and Spooked. Oh, wow. He interviews several um, uh, schizophren- people living with schizophrenia and he talks to them about their experience. And it was just really eye opening. I-, I can't think of the name. I should shout it out, but I can't think of the name anyway. But it, um, there's more to it than just uh, using it as an excuse to hurt other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. to, to get out of jail, essentially. Um, and the ability to move around the United States so easily and on so our quickly. railways yeah. and so quickly is terrifying. It was almost, it was just so easy for him to get from place to place and in and out unnoticed. Yeah. Um, so that is terrifying. Um, and those are my thoughts. Now let's get into how not to get murdered. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. That was terrible. (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Mm, We got some oldies but goodies here. Uh, So be aware of your surroundings. Head on a swivel and trust your gut. While out and about, look as strong and confident as possible. I was doing this the other day, Beth. (laughs) Remember Beth's tip. (laughs) Fuck you. I will kill you as you see other people while you are walking down the street. You don't have to actually kill anybody. No, you just think it. You You just just think think it it as you're looking at them and it it makes makes you you look unapproachable. It really does. Yeah, and I'm still here to tell about it. So make yourself hard to hold move like a toddler having a temper tantrum now in the this isn't of like way. like just walking down the street don't do this yeah this Wait, is when what? if somebody's holding you <laughs> oh, oh okay. i forgot to put oh. that in there that's okay just, i'll just like, walk down the street and move like and a just, toddler <laughs> it's temper tantrum time <laughs> okay got it so if somebody grabs you make yourself hard to grip and try to hit your attacker in the most vulnerable areas. Um, The groin, the nose, and the eyes. Hit soft places. Hit soft places, including ears and the temples. Aim for anything that's made for breathing or breathing. And try to avoid focusing on what your attacker is doing to you and instead identify your target and use as much force as possible. Do fight like hell to get out of there. Yeah, 
that's yeah. that's what that's what um they that's all say what the experts yeah. are saying fight like hell uh fight like hell so now it's shout out time where we shout out any content by or about any othered or minoritized groups or of, of folks or any true crime goodies all right i just wanted to shout out two podcasts partition it's a historical podcast, Fruities Love History, about um, the 1947 partition of India and Pakistan. Oh, wow. Um, That's going to be really fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. They, inter- they interview people who experienced it. Wow. Families split up. People were people were killed. Viol- yeah. It was a lot of violence. Anyway, it's fascinating. Check that out. And Archetypes by Meghan Markle. Oh, oh my God. Your it favorite. Is so good first two episodes first serena williams sec second mariah carey um it is just a fantastic it's, it's super well produced but it's so good just megan markle interviewing women about the stereotypes wow that harm women and she's she is really great at interviewing and she's so smart and she's got great guests so far so wow that's awesome yeah what do you got well uh we mentioned this earlier uh untold uh-huh. The Girlfriend yeah. Who Didn't Exist on Netflix, which is yeah. um, the story about um, Manti, Manti Teo. Yeah. Yes. And it was really good. So check that it out. It was. It was. Yeah. Yes. And, and and we're also going to be talking about it on uh, Patreon. So join Patreon, Patreon so you join can uh, join us on that discussion. And Hell then yeah. um, another show that I got into uh, this past week is Rap Shit on oh, HBO Max. Can I tell you how surprised I am that, that I watched my it? Or... White old, my white friend <laughs> loves this show. It's and a, that it's a is really a testament good show. to how great it is. It is. Yes. Um, it's, yeah. it's almost all um, black people, I think. Uh huh. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I can't remember if there's any white people at all. Don't care. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> plenty the of them characters on TV. <laughs> are really just really good. You know, yeah. like they're yeah. um, developed really well, and the yeah. story is super dynamic and complex, funny, and mm-hmm. um, so warning. It's very very dirty. So. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if you're not into um, raunch, uh-huh. you probably won't like it. But um, it's it's really good. Yeah, yeah. I like don't it. Don't watch it with your grandma. No, don't. That's don't. what I was saying. Or, or, or maybe your daughter. I don't know. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then one more. Game of Thrones is back with House of Dragon. So Them Thrones. Yes. Them Thrones Them is Thrones back. Is back. <laughs> you know, Them Thrones Them is Thrones back. Is <laughs> the Blacks love Game of Thrones. I will well, say a, that. There's a, a Black character too finally yeah yeah, who's uh royalty yeah 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 it's it's fun it's fun so that is to recap partition wherever you get your podcasts archetypes it's only it's a podcast but only on spotify okay untold the girlfriend who didn't exist on netflix and rap shit on hbo max as well as house of the dragon also on hbo max yeah well, 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 if it isn't the end of our show, Beth. <laughs> well, well, look what, well, look look what the what cat, the dragged, cat in. dragged in. <laughs> That's all, folks. In the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. 
If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something she had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? My name is Bill Huffman. And I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.